1: Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives, and with a good heart, I shake your hand. It's good for all of us to be here. In addition to relativity, this is First Voices Radio. I'm Teo and Ghost Horse, and this is an all-native-hosted, all-native-produced First Voices Radio, and Liz Hill is a producer of First Voices Radio. And you can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprouts, Spotify, as well as First Voices, indigenousradio.org for archiving, downloading, and listening. Our first guest, Joe Pitawanicot, is an Ojibwe from Wemkong and married with one daughter. And Joe is the founder and director of Creators Garden, an indigenous outdoor and now fully online education-based business. Creators Gardens is focused on plant identification, beyond sustainable harvesting and teaching every one of their linguistic, historical, cultural, edible, ecological, and medicinal significance through experiences. Joe's programming is easily adaptable to make appropriate and successfully delivered to a variety of organizations, including 100 First Nations communities, 20 universities and 18 colleges, and dozens of various institutions throughout Canada and the United States and beyond, Joe has learned from hundreds of traditional knowledge holders and uniquely blends and reinforces it with an array of Western sciences. And I'd like to speak with Joe Pidawanakot, and now part one of my talk with Joe Pitwanacott. I'd like to welcome you, Joe, and it's a great honor to have you here, and uh, thank you for, for being here on First Voices Radio. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. I read your story out of Canada. What happens to Joe Pitawanakat in his everyday life when he's out there in the forest, on the land, with the land, talking with the land, and the plants are standing out and looking at
2: you? Yeah. So usually when I'm like out in the bush, out in the forest, with with uh, I'm I'm always with my daughter. Uh, now now we have a dog, so I'm always out with my daughter and my dog, and trying to keep up with the the both of them. Yeah, just constantly just being surrounded by all of that knowledge is is uh, uh, every day that I get home, it's always like super overwhelming. Like I'm real tired, mentally drained every time I get home <laughs> wow. from those days that we spend outside. I know you mentioned there's a certain responsibility
1: that you have. It's an obligation rather than a right to a plant. In the Western mind, I think they think about I have a right to everything, but I think it's different among Native people that we were obligated as responsible. So that same responsibility goes with your daughter. Your thoughts about that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So um she it's it's been super fun since since we had her around. She's seven. She's gonna be eight soon. And uh so now, you know, she can clock a solid 25 kilometers a day, no problem in the bush. And um, and that's exactly what is normal or what we made sure was normal for her is our responsibility to the plants. And so she's grown up always knowing how necessary uh, the plant medicines are. Um, Like one example, she has... um, uh, ever since she was first born, her first bath, they have been in medicine because of all, well, I mean, you know, like we never had soap before. What we would do is we would make a nice, strong tea with a medicine plant that's good for our skin and to help clean. And so that was just our life. And, uh, and, and so... Um, when we were raising our daughter for her, that was just normal to have a bath. That was like this dark tea color. And uh, in kindergarten, we sent her to school and she come back home and she's like, did you know, um, like nobody else, I asked everyone, no one, everyone just pours water in their bath. Like it's clear and she thought it was so crazy and so for her like using medicine has always been like a normal thing she gets a cut she knows what to do she has baths in her tea and she's uh she's just constantly drinking all of the different teas that we have oh what did you make this week and then drinking it telling us if she likes it or not you know it's just normal and so for her the other thing that's normal is our responsibility to those plants and so when, when we're outside I really caught her this year because of the amount of just miles we were able to clock in the foot in the bush um she was always grabbing seeds she had pockets full of seeds and she was taking plants and putting them in new areas and and just always in that mindset of responsibility like these plants are my friends they help me so i'm gonna help them and just watching that in action this year was like so fun I'm seeing, i
1: hearing that that children have a ta- tactile relationship with the plants, and so you speaking your your language of Anishinaabe and the relationship with that. Is there a way you, that you describe the touch, and of course we can say the uses of it, but it, that's that's what we're supposed to be passing on, isn't it? That that tactile re- relationship responsibility, as you have and your daughter. You said you walk miles with her, right? how far are we are we away as native people from that
2: we are uh, i think yeah you know maybe quite a ways away Um, because you know what we once called life is now intense therapy like when you take somebody who is sick somebody who is developing diseases and accelerated aging and all of these things that we're dealing with and you expose them to uh, aspects of our culture like medicine or, or like nutrition and starting to look at traditional diets and things like that when you start to provide that as an option for that individual what once we called everyday life is now turning into being an intense therapy. Uh, and so, yeah, we are pretty disconnected from that. And I think that the more opportunities we do, that we get to be able to, just like my daughter has, just be able to do it. Uh, and, and it's just kind of like, she that's her life, is just doing it. It's not talking about it. It's not imagining it or dreaming about it. Uh, she wakes up on or she 's going to bed on Friday night. Where are we going to go tomorrow, and what are we going to do because uh, she wants to go to a good spot. She wants to be able to um, see all of her friends and 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 interact with interact with them, help them, uh, even though this year you know what we didn 't even harvest medicine. I harvested like two bags of three different kinds of plant, like nothing. We're used to harvesting like 220 different species every year. Uh, and this year, nothing. All we did was explore new areas and help, mainly because that's what my daughter wanted to do. And, and so we just helped. I have lots of leftovers. I have lots that we have harvested from previous years. And so this year, yeah, it was just about the plants. Even though they weren't even helping us, we're helping them. Just like when you, just like with some people, um, some people, you know how good it makes you feel when you could give something to somebody, not expecting anything in return. You just wanted to help them, so you gave them a gift that helps them, and and that that sort of feeling, without really wanting or needing anything in return, is it's a really good thing to provide to another human being. It's something that we could do for hundreds of species of plants as well. You
1: know, Joe, I'm thinking about those peoples who don't I haven't really ex- explored or the chance to learn and allow the plants to teach as they have you and with you and your grandma. But, you know, I, I think I read something where it, it, it's haunting not to know the name of a certain plant. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a couple of, um, so I'm in the middle of, um, of, uh, creating a resource right now for our YouTube channel. Just, um, I'm just recording for every single plant that i can their names and and breaking down exactly what that name means what is what it is describing uh and and just releasing these going to be releasing these just steady over the next uh and maybe years uh but um yeah when there's there's some plants that i that i just actually have not been able to ever hear their names and some of them are super common like one of the most common and haunting ones literally haunting i think about it every day is uh sweet gale or mirica gale It's it's a medicine we use those seeds uh sometimes in cooking like for flavor uh you could put them in like a pepper grinder it's really really good but um as a medicine they are used to help stuff our pillow and they prevent uh night terrors um and so uh really really important uh medicine really 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 common like around any slow moving rivers like it's everywhere it's super common it's a it's a birch it's in the birch family and uh um i've never heard its name being spoken once And the idea of never being able to recover that name, maybe it will be gone forever. I I don't even know, because in the name of a plant, it describes so much, it portrays, it projects the identity of that being so well, and then to, to, to miss that. Is uh, terrifying. So it's my goal and and maybe responsibility to do everything that I can to recover that, um, and, and and yeah. So that's super crazy, super fun.
1: You said 220 different plant medicines, plants actually. And then when you you think about how Westerners use this way of um, trying to combine everything to make one one size fits all type of medicine. Is that possible in medicines you're working with? I know you can combine here and there, but as you say, each plant has their their names, has their specificity as far as portraying and protecting, as you say. But in as far as my knowledge is concerned, each plant has a song. Has it gone this far where you realize that the song is actually the word you're you're portraying it as?
2: When you start to dig in and and when you really want these answers, Uh, Yeah, it's kind of scary to think about what may have been gone or what may be missing. Uh, But then also, you know, the opportunity or responsibility we have to get what we can. Like, like even just to your first question, um, just about mixing medicines and things like that. Like, there's a when you when you go to make a, a medicine, take like women's medicine. My grandma was a midwife, so this is just like a supernatural place for me to go. But women's medicine. Um, There is so many different plants and trees out there that can be used and are used like directly specifically for so many different issues that women go through and you could talk about each one of those individually, um, but when you go to make women's medicine, you combine all of those. And you make women's medicine, you make that. uh, It's it's not, uh, it was very hard for my grandma to look at one plant and say, that's women's medicine. Because women's medicine is not just one thing, it's everything all together. So you do what you can to, to make that medicine and that's what it will be. So you take women's medicine, do the same thing for heart medicine. There's like, you know, 30 different species of plants. So that all works specifically with different parts of your cardiovascular system. And, you know, you think of the importance of that. The cardiovascular disease is the number one killer in indigenous communities and in the, the entire United States and I think every developed country. Uh, but um, when you go to make that heart medicine, use it all together. And then you could take even a step back further from that and you look at all the heart medicines and liver medicines and lung and, and kidneys and bones and uh, everything. All of the medicines that we have that help with these specific parts of our body and you mix them all together. Um, and we did do that. That was something that was a medicine that every family would, ha- would, would have been making in my community. Every family did make it up until about... 60, 70 years ago, till that knowledge was gone, we were able to kind of pull that out of my grandma six years ago. We made our first batch of that medicine. and uh, the, the year that we we've been making it every year since. And the first uh, the, the best year that we had to making that medicine, we had 119 different species of plants that was inside of like 160 quart or, or like 45 gallon pot. That we cooked for like 40 days and extracted all of the medicine from that, and and uh, it was such a crazy process. But to be able to have the medicinal potential of every single plant within our geo region, um, all in one. One lick. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's the way that we used to make medicine. That's what every family used to have. But yeah, just the 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 degree of separation is so great that we were actually the first people in my community or in my family to make it in forty five years, and the first people in our community to make it in over twenty years. Uh, and and so we're doing what we can to teach as many communities how to be able to bring this 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 important part of life back um uh but yeah that's that's a really funny uh a neat idea to think about i'm thinking about this one too
1: joe is um i know the anishinaabe culture reaches far and wide and cross-culturally transmorphing with other tribes other native people you find similar uses of it have have you stepped outside of the anishinaabe to discover other tribes using the same with a different word but the same uh, spiritual inflection to that plant
2: yeah yeah you know what exactly so this is a Beautiful question. I I come across this idea the most when uh, when we're well. I mean, you know, when it comes to the use of the plant, it's generally pretty well the same uh, across uh, uh, across continents from the far north down into. Uh, you know, even some of these plants grow in Central America and so visiting with Mayan, uh, Zapatista communities, it was still the same thing. Uh, but the, the interesting things though, um, really come about when you're looking at the, the names of the plants in, in the languages. Um, like there's, there's one, uh, one of my favorites is, uh, um, we call it or, um, that's a wild bee balm or wild bergamot, Monardo fistulosa. And this, this plant just grows everywhere. Uh, and in, in the Nishnabe language, it's describing, uh, elk. Moshko is an elk and moshkoawis is, that's elk medicine. Uh, that, that, that suffix at the end of the word indicates that there's a special connection between elk and the, and this plant. Um, And you could take advantage of that connection too. It's called mijmakajiga. When you burn that medicine and elk can smell that in the winter, when all that plant is gone, all their favorite medicine is gone, but you're burning it. And so they're able to smell it. It overrides an instinct that they have and they're reckless in their pursuit of that plant that they will walk into your smell as well. And so to enhance the efficacy of your hunting, you'll be more successful, uh, maybe even more ethical because you're getting closer to that animal. Um, And if you're looking at Sioux, Lakota, you look in any other language you could ever imagine throughout the entire United States that lives in the distribution range of this plant, everyone calls it elk medicine. It translates to in Lakota, in Sioux, or like whatever Dakota, whatever languages you're thinking of, it is always Elk medicine or uh, this plant is connected with elk. That's what we have just been calling this plant for, I don't know how long. And so it's really neat to see the the taxonomy, indigenous taxonomy of plants, the naming of plants is really consistent despite the differences in in our languages. The idea projected with with it is still very similar. You know,
1: somebody named Jonathan Lowe said something about which your research was about. Is is it, it, that the, the the language is encoded in in our languages? But I do know is it's something like quantum physics in our language. When out of that, if we are speaking the the encoded quantum physics of that plant's name, that's part of the medicine. And I want to go to that because, you know, the next kind of uh, doomsday thing coming up is that our languages are going to disappear at the end of this century. All indigenous languages, maybe up to 90%. Well, how do you feel about that when Western science comes forward and says this? Because, Joe, if I could take it to this place before I say anything, is that there's poverty. You know, like there was among the native peoples, there was the Western world was seeing poverty poverty porn, so to speak. Now I'm looking at, well, there's just plant poverty and there's all these things that animals are having poverty now because of our inaccessibility to land. Land is disappearing. Medicines may be disappearing. Languages may be disappearing. So what you're doing, I'm thinking, is that by keeping these languages intact, your language of Anishinaabe with the plants intact, that it's an example to other native nations, especially the young people like you, keeping this intact that we're not going anywhere because we're the roots.
2: Yeah, you know what? Um, So the problem, I guess, is that that would be like a prophecy that would be uh, a prediction of, of the future and and in my understanding, prophecies are warnings. <laughs> it's not that this will happen it's a warning and if that prophecy comes true you failed to stop it and so then we're coming back and looking at responsibility again and our responsibility to listen to what uh these these uh scientific projections and prophecies are and heed to that warning and say i'm not going to or i'm going to do what i can to make sure that this doesn't happen that this prophecy doesn't come true because i I want to be uh, successful. And so this is why what we do, what we do, just uh, getting people out, engaging in this type of knowledge and uh, recapturing it and making it normal again (laughs) so that things like this don't happen, so that this prophecy doesn't come true, so that it fails and and we succeed. And we'll be
1: right back with part two of our very compelling interview with Joe Pitawanakot after this from community of beings and the song is burning times taking you into part two of joe's interview here on first Forces radio i'm teo kuzin ghost horse
0: together, meet the stars in the middle, circle near an old old tree, at the times appointed by the seasons of the earth, and the phases of the moon, in the center, stood a woman, equal with the others, and respected for. Inanna Isis is star today Anna Hecate Demeter Kali Inanna Isis is star today Anna Hecate Demeter Kali Inanna Every force came to power Through domination And they bonded in the worship Of a dead man On a cross They sought control Of the common people By the man To the Church of Rome And the Pope declared An inquisition It was war against the women Whose power they feared In this holocaust against the Nature people Nine million European women died And the tale is told of those Who by the hundreds, holding together, chose their death in the sea, while chanting the praises of the mother goddess, a refusal of betrayal, women were dying to be free.
1: To First Voices Radio. My name is Tiokazing Ghost Horse here. And uh, part one, you just heard with Joe Pitawanakat, who is an Ojibwe from the Anishinaabe Nation. So Wim Kong is the founder and director of Creator's Garden, an indigenous outdoor and now fully online education based business. And uh, we now will go back to part two of Joe Pitawanakat. It's very interesting. And stay tuned. I'm thinking about the Anthropocene that people are projecting that, you know, we think too much about the human first. But when I refer to the relationship the Native peoples have with the earth, and I'm speaking about uh, a particular concept, in this case, finding out that a lot of Native nations do not have the concept or the word for domination and it has to be a relationship with the medicines, with the plants, with the earth, because if we start dominating, then we're, we're just putting our foot on everything and saying that we own, we're, we're more um, intelligent than a plant. Yet when I grow a garden, it's not that I'm growing it, it's the garden is growing me. And so Anthropocene seems to be another thought process. So what I'm thinking is like, wow, we have so much intelligence out there. And when you're in that, and when you're teaching your little girl, that's the intelligence, that that's our responsibility. I'm thinking that way. So in that way, I'm thinking what you're doing. I see all the medicines back there that you have, you know, you're storing. That's what it's going to come to, because I'm walking here, Joe, and I'm not seeing any birds. I'm not seeing any deer. And I'm only seeing humans and their dogs and their pets. And I'm like, what happened to to all of this? When I was a boy, it was full. It all seems to be missing. Is that true among the woods where you are in
2: Ontario? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, like just speaking from a plant-centric uh, Perspective: the okay. uh, plants they 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 rely on really intricate connections to be and, and relationships to be able to thrive. And so our job is well, I mean, uh, our job is just to listen to Grandma and do what she says. And mm-hmm. and what Grandma has is thousands of years of protocol of rules to follow that are designed in a way to make sure that you're helping those plants that you're you're playing into. Uh, they're yeah, so you're you're there to help them. Like yeah, it's crazy when you're looking at plants, the systems that they rely on in the Great Lakes region. As what makes it different than other parts of the world is that the way that they distribute the seeds, the way that they that they distribute themselves, the way that they reproduce. Uh, every plant seems to have a flaw or a problem that can help ensure that that plant is living to its fullest potential. And so, okay, so sorry, yeah, to your question, just about, uh, you know, development and changes in the environment, uh, plants rely on a incredibly specific and intricate connection uh, between ants, bears, mice owls and snakes Uh, so in order for a plant to distribute the seeds most main medicinal species rely on ants to grab the seeds we always think birds grab them and poop them out somewhere and that's where it grows but that's true in other parts of the world but when it comes to the great lakes region birds mice chipmunks anything who eats these seeds destroys them digests them and destroys them and so they end up being the worst enemies instead what our plants rely on is for the ants to collect all the seeds and the ants prepare the seed to germinate they, it's called myra mycokery. they eat the a case there's a case around every seed that prevents that seed from being able to germinate. It's called the eleasome, and that eleasome is nutritionally complete for ants. So they collect all the seeds, eat that eleasome, and now that seed is ready to germinate. But what the ants do is they store it inside of a giant cavern in their nest called a midden, and uh and that's where it stays forever until a bear will come to eat the ants eat the larvae and what the bears do is they eat all of the seeds from all those medicinal plants that the ants have stored for years the bear ends up eating those as well so thankfully a bear's digestive system is like 12 inches long and the seeds go through the bear unharmed they don't not get destroyed or hurt and so wherever the bear poops That's where all of our medicine seeds are sitting. So the bear is what unearths all of that medicinal potential and puts it somewhere, deposits it somewhere. And uh, mouse, mainly deer mice, they'll look at that big pile of poop and they'll say, hey, that's look at all that food. That bear didn't even digest nothing. So what the mouse will do is it'll grab every one of those seeds and it'll bury them centimeter, centimeter and a half deep throughout the forest floor and maintain this massive network of trails that is just running on a buffet table of all the seeds that it has stored. Now what happens then is the mouse will eat all of those uh, seeds and digest them and destroy them until an owl will come and remove that mouse until a rattlesnake will remove that mouse. Then all of those seeds will germinate and they will become our medicine. This is why uh, bears are super important uh, creature in protecting medicine. Um, And owls and snakes, they have such important roles. Like one family of barred owls, probably one of the more common types of owls, can eat over 30,000 mice every year. That's a lot of mice that are being removed. That's a lot of medicine that helps to be planted. And so when you're looking at the barrenness of our green spaces, uh, when you're looking on the land and you're not seeing any of the plants that should be there, like it's just sterile. There's nothing growing there because bears are not there pulling the seeds out uh, because there's no more raptors. There's no more owls and hawks that are removing the mice. And so a disruption into that system. And so that's what's causing this uh, um, this this issue of there just of there just not being enough green access to green spaces, access to diverse areas with that have our medicines is because it's all locked away because the system is broken. Whereas our culture, every part of our culture, every tradition that we have is helping with that process. Uh, like, like when you go to make a, and I'm really getting into it, but when you go to make a, a water drum, you get round stones that are used as leverage points to, to stretch the hide over the water water drum, right? Those round stones um, in in a lot of communities that we go to, the only place that you get them is from anthills because ants are obsessed with round things. They'll roll it home and and there it'll stay. So you reach into the anthill and you pull out those round stones and what you're doing, who you're acting like, a lot of communities will even make, they'll make like a glove from a bear and they'll reach into that nest to grab those uh, round stones for the water drum. But what they They pull out is all of those medicine seeds and it's a garden of hundreds uh, all all that medicine growing there. It's the most beautiful thing to see. Rattles that you make for kids, for babies when they first come out, you're using um, on grouse. Grouse will have that crop underneath their chin where they store all of their food. It's this big distendable organ like a stomach um, and it's see-through. So what we do with that crop is we let it dry while it's inflated and And it's translucent. You could see through it. And then we'll take the contents from the gizzard that has a mixture of stones, pulp from the food that it's eating and seeds from all of the medicinal plants that it's that it's eating. And, and so this, what's interesting about the, the bird though is that it, it because it's depositing these stones in its gizzard to basically be the teeth, it only gets hard stones that are above the hardness of seven. So like flint stones. And so that's what it deposits in its gizzard. So we take those flint stones and we put them in their, and the rattle put them in the crop that we dried out, and so when the babies shake that, uh, they get that sh-, sh 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 sound that they've been surrounded by for nine months. You know, mommy's heartbeat, just all of that 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 rhythm, that sh sound, and then they get to see the lights too from those Flintstones hitting each other and sparking and and uh, like I remember we went to go make these with my daughter and um, and she when she opened the crop of the gizzard my daughter who is five turning six she says hey look at all these seeds and she was able to identify what those seeds were from, what plants they were from. Oh, this bird must've ate these. Yeah, just being responsible for those plants and and putting them back out there, making making a rattle to comfort babies. Uh, every cultural component, every cultural knowledge that we engage with is helping um, distribution or helping the diversity of the, the world that we're living in. And so when you're thinking of other systems being imposed, other systems coming in here and saying, well, this is the way we're going to live now. They are disrupting that system. And now we're here hundreds of years later saying, what happened to the diversity? And, uh, and well, the, the the culture is gone. And it's the culture that has been responsible for that diversity. So uh, consult with us. <laughs> I definitely hear that, Joe. Thank you for that.
1: You know, it reminds me of what there's, they, they describe ecological diversity and um, biological diversity. But where is the cultural diversity? And I'm thinking that part of this is your daughter and your grandma. And I know you've learned a lot from your grandmother. But the other day I was watching a squirrel bury a seed. But their babies didn't know where that, that walnut was i mean when the when the mom buried the babies weren't born then so the the baby came back and found that seed so is the memory passed down through dna and i'm relating your grandma to your daughter and obviously it's it's an action so the memory of of the squirrel's mother to maybe the squirrel's daughter understanding exactly and having this honing device of DNA in our memories is that, have you seen that enacted out in nature as well
2: as among the human forms? There's, there's a lot of examples in, in nature of this uh, um, really incredible portrayal of memory, you know, with elephants and stopping at graves of grandparents that, they haven't had exposure to and knowing that that was there and having their whole morning ceremony. So like, yeah, there's, there's lots of examples. Uh, of that, and, and all of this anecdote, all of these examples is driving uh, a, a fair scientific inquiry as to like how this happens, uh, what's actually going on, because uh, there's something that we don't understand. And so, yeah, you know, it's being studied right now, but I'm I'm super curious. It'd be nice to be able just to tap into that and just, just remember and recapture all those names that uh, we have forgotten. But yeah, that's a, that is a really neat idea. So I know
1: that you said that you don't understand your your language fluency yet and um I'm wondering if you're looking forward to that and because I know this is the current trend which to me it always has been to recover our language you finding it easier to recover your language by participating with that which is now separated from our language and more into a technical of explaining it in the English way rather than our original way, let's say um, root. it can't be domesticated, right? It can't be planted anywhere else. It, it's, it's on its own. And and I think that's how our languages are. It, it can't be dissected in a in sense that um, to be more subjected and objectified. So it became a noun. So what I'm reading, what you are doing out there, tending to the creator's garden, so to speak, that you are, you are in the action you are verbing you're verbing everything
2: yeah yeah it's it's hard to separate that yeah it, learning the names of plants uh, was definitely my vehicle to learning as much as i know about my language now um which which i've been finding lately is 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 fair. I, there was a language conference, uh, East or Toulouse, uh, little Travers or wherever the heck they are. They do so much language initiatives. And, uh, they, there was a whole weekend in, in the end of October where it was just all Anishinaabe speakers. And they were, they were just telling stories. Like every workshop that I went to was just somebody sitting in front of their laptop on zoom, telling stories. Man, was that ever nice to hear. And so whatever fluency that I do have in my language to be able to understand the stories they were sharing uh, was created from Learning about the plants and what those names mean, and so you know the uses of English and the translations. This is necessary for me to understand what each of these syllables are doing. But uh, you know, it was really interesting about that conference. There, are lots of the stories I was uh, listening in on. At some, like one of them was describing uh, going out to make jam with her mom. Just, just, just talking about the day that they made jam. And then she stopped and she said, I don't remember that plant's name, and but it's called highbush cranberry. So I'll just call it highbush cranberry, I'm sorry. And she apologizes for not knowing the name of the plant. So I just bust on and tell her, you know, what it was, And then she knew And so it is like really neat to to have that connection happen sort of live. Uh, and it was those interactions that are driving my to to create this resource uh just on our YouTube channel. And going through each each of these names, they're they're describing um uh yeah, actions, verbs, really um, intricate details that are that are occurring, and um, objectify it would be diminishing what you're observing, uh, maybe diminishing of the, of the actual identity of that plant within that name. Uh, so like, um, like it's just impossible. Like I don't even understand how that can happen. Like there's one plant that's called gazibinashk. This is my favorite one to tell everybody cause it's crazy. So gazibinashk is describing a plant, uh, that, uh, that ashk at the end of the word is just the the plant portion just it's a it's a plant being and so the gazi is where that identity is and so gazibnashk um zibe is a river and so this plant gazibnashk or uh, scouring rush, it, it's generally beside a river or, or a water source uh, because the plant uses needs a lot of silica. Uh, I think it's like 13% silica. So it needs to be near moving water, uh, always by water. So it's always by Ziba. And when I told my grandma, I made that connection that it's called Z- Zibnash because it's always by a river. She said, uh, my, my mom said that Uh, The reason why we call it gazibinashk is because of the sound that it makes. So the plant pulls up a bunch of silica from the soil, deposits that silica, which is glass, right, in the outer portion of the plant. And on the outer portion of the plant, it's like really ribbed. And the the plant is hollow. So when the plant dries, you basically and you rub this plant together, um, you get glass sh- little shards of glass that are all rubbing against each other with this hollow center, and it and it makes like a scream. The plant screams, and it sounds like a like a little girl. And and so my grandma said her mom scared her once uh, on the porch with this plant, rubbed a bunch of it together, and then my grandma thought there was a scream. And and so uh, I thought, oh, so isinue, is describing that scream sound. So isinue, that's why it's called this. And so I was like, oh, so it has two meanings in one name. So I went to a plant expert in my community and I said, check out what I found out. And so he said the same thing. He said, I never thought that before because he drinks the tea. And so he said, um, is a sour taste and so or that's why it's called that because the plant when you go to taste it it tastes sweet in your mouth and then when you swallow it it turns sour so that's why we call it that and so i was like oh there's three meanings in one name and then so i was explaining to the uh, a language group that i had, like a whole presentation on it it was super fun and there was one woman in there listening to my presentation on this plant. Uh, and and one of the things that I explained was that because this plant pulls up a bunch of silica from the soil and deposits it in the outside silica is a hard abrasive crystal. Like that's what we put on sandpaper. That's what we use to grind things down with. Um, the reason why it's called scouring rush in English is because it was... That's, how, that's what everybody used for like a scouring pad before the industrialization of steel wool, everyone used this plant. And so she heard that piece. And so uh, she, she said, I have a question for you. And she said, how does your dad tell you to have a shower? And I was like, what, <laughs> what kind of a question is it? And so I said, uh, is what he says. Uh, and she's like, what does that mean? So I don't know. Like soap, dia um, is my butt. So clean my butt uh, with soap. I don't know what, this, what she's getting. And so she says, how does your dad tell you how to do dishes? Um, what does that mean? She said, oh, it's like, I don't know. It's like just cleaning. I, I don't know, understand. So she said, gizi is when you're scrubbing something. So your dad, when he says gzi big he's telling you to scrub your butt. Uh, or gizi be, he's telling you to scrub all of those dishes. So that's what this plant is telling you that there's a a way that you can use it um, and also like four meanings all in one name, right? Where it grows, a sound that it makes, how it tastes, a utility use that it has. And, and yeah, all of those are, are verbs. All of those are doings that this plant accomplishes. And when you see that plant and you say what its name is, you say, oh, look at this guy, uh, you're not just saying a word, you're having an experience, um, your mouth can pucker, your observation of the way that this plant has affected history or but like by the, by the tool that it was or always ha- has been. And then, you know, sounds that, that it makes and it turns into a whole experience. And all of that identity is projected just in the one name. Uh, that's why, like, yeah, I think it's really uh, important for us to really learn what those names are, what they're describing. There's so much uh, that can be captured as far as, you know, that plant's identity goes. So one more thought before
1: we go, because I know you can go here, Joe, is, uh, is uh, we have a word in our language, pejuta, really meaning herb or medicine or plants that have medicine and special. But what we do is we tie it to the stars. You see, so every plant medicine has knowledge of the stars because that's what they observe every day, the consciousness of the stars. And so they're incorporating, encoding that knowledge and intelligence of the stars inside the plants. Is there such a concept in your language with that? So
2: culturally and traditionally, these are uh, understood, are, are getting better understood Uh, But as far as specifically understood in language, I I, I haven't even actually thought to think about that. How did you say that word in in your language? It's a pejuta. It's really
1: meaning the star's um, energy is here in the plants.
2: Oh, sweet. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and just those thoughts like that. But that's something to talk with you maybe next time, because we just took a whole hour up of uh, just uh, delivering what we need to, the bigger message, bigger than us. But I, I want to thank you, Joe Pitawanaka. Thanks for taking your time out and sharing your knowledge and um, you know, your experience. Because I, I think this is something, as you know, the world is needing right now, that knowledge is much greater,
2: much bigger than we are as humans. For sure. Yeah. Thanks for uh, bringing me on. That's super fun. That hour just, just whizzed right past us nuts. <laughs> yeah. Any last words or any thoughts for the listeners here? Yeah, no, I'm super pumped. So I, uh, we're really doing everything that we can to recapture and regather and have an understanding of the importance of, uh, uh, what we would call um, medicine knowledge. That's medicine knowledge for health, for language, for, uh, environmental health, for everything we do, everything that we can to share, uh, this knowledge in, in in every way that we can. So, um, lately, uh, this has been virtually. (laughs) So, um, our, Uh, through our Facebook page is Creators Garden. We're on YouTube. We have uh, uh, content that's continuously, constantly being uploaded to. And then, like I said, I think one of my biggest, most exciting projects is having all of these names on our YouTube channel, just a place to go, a resource to go to learn about Nishinaabe taxonomy of Every or the taxonomical process, every single plant uh, that we have, I'm already a good ways into recording all of those sessions, so we'll be releasing those soon. I'm pumped. Well, look forward
1: to that, and thank you again, Joe Pitawanakat. And that was Joe Pitawanakat of the Ojibwe Nation, is a plant medicine teacher, reclaiming a shinabe Names for species and reviving eons old indigenous languages, which could help tackle climate crisis. A 2014 study estimates that roughly 30% of both the world's indigenous languages and animal species have declined between 1970 and 2009. Some conservationists and climate scientists believe the key to protecting endangered plants and animals is supporting efforts of maintaining indigenous languages. Language loss is especially acute in the Americas and Australia, where hundreds of indigenous languages are endangered. Linguists predict 50 to 90 percent of the world's 7,000 languages may not be spoken by the end of this century. And I'll spell Joe Pitawanakot's name for you and where you can see his work on YouTube. It's Joe P i t a w a n a k w a t. Joe Pedrovarakat. Oshimolaje Oyate. Wanyi Wachituello. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. My name is Tiokasin. Ghost Horse.
0: We will fill the void You are the character Who comes with just one name Arise, rebel You say it's easy Yet you walk another path Watching the horizon As you remember yesteryears wide awake one day i will see the sun beyond the pines by the water You will stand beside us all just as we did before she will lick the essence of cedar and pine fulfilling everything you imagined not longing nor wishing under the shade of history Bye.
1: 2018 movie score falls around her. That is Shade of History by Julian Cote, featuring Pura Faye Crescioni from Pineal Productions. And thank you for joining us for First Forces Radio. I'm Teocas and Ghost Tours. We'll see you, hear you next time.